0: Dose Nation. Welcome back to Dose Nation. I'm James Kent. That, of course, is the Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows from Revolver, album in 1966, kind of setting off the Beatles' psychedelic period with a tune directly inspired from Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and Richard Metzner's book, the Psychedelic Experience, based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was a very popular psychedelic manual of the time. The story goes uh, John Lennon found a copy of The Psychedelic Experience in a bookstore, saw the line, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. Thought it would be a great opening bit for a song, and that's where Tomorrow Never Knows comes from. Tomorrow Never Knows, of course, maybe the template. For all psychedelic music that followed, many bands later in uh, the 70s and 80s and 90s experimenting with psychedelic music uh, claim that Tomorrow Never Knows is the track that started it all. The uh, backwards loops and the orchestral track and the droning C chord that goes on and on and on. Uh, like a raga from Indian music. Not to mention, of course, the lyrical content, which is all about, uh, you know, dying and surrendering to the void and opening up into a world of shining. These are all tropes that were uh, established back in the uh, early 1960s. Of course, as I said, the psychedelic experience, the book by Leary and the Harvard crew, was extremely influential at the time, and the Harvard crew thought that they were being clever by cribbing from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and making an LSD manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, claiming that the ego death experience of LSD was similar to the dying experience, and that to get the full effect of this experience, You needed to follow it deeper and deeper through various bardos of the afterlife. Now, this is a very romantic notion, and I'm sure at the time they thought that they were being brilliant by appropriating Tibetan theology and placing it over this new experience, this LSD experience. The problem was that people started reading the the Tibetan Book of the Dead or reading the psychedelic experience And taking lsd and then actually thought that they were dying because the suggestion had been planted in their head that the lsd experience was a death experience and then 40 minutes an hour into it an hour and a half into it suddenly they've lost all touch with reality and the only thing that they can remember is that they're dying Um, and this was a problem Uh, people on psychedelics often feel like they might be dying but it's even worse if you go into the experience with the expectation that you're going that you are going to experience death firsthand and this of course led to many freakouts many psychotic episodes I spent a little bit of time at the end of the last episode of Dose Nation talking about psychotic reactions and how sometimes the psychotic reactions are the most memorable because of the sheer amount of adrenaline that is being released into the body in the state of of emotional panic, and this is a nuance that I wanted to clarify because I'm going to be talking about this in quite some detail over the next few episodes. And that is the difference between psychosis and a psychotic episode or a psychotic reaction. Psychosis can be any words, thoughts, voices that you hear in your head that you can't stop. So if you have a loop of music playing in your head that you can't stop, that is a very minor psychosis. It is um, you know, what, what, what you would call an, a trivial psychosis. Uh, happens to a lot of people. It's phantom music, and a loop, an earworm that gets stuck in their head that they can't get rid of. Now that would be scary if it wasn't music, if it was a loop of somebody's voice telling you to do something like commit suicide or murder somebody, that would be a less trivial psychosis. That would be a non-trivial psychosis because it's actually causing you, the person experiencing the psychosis, to feel scared and in danger. And once you cross that line from saying, oh, that's an irritating thing that I'm hearing in my head, or that's an interesting sound that I'm hearing in my head, or "I'll, I'll listen to those voices in my head, isn't that weird? Once it turns the corner to, the voices in the head are scaring me. I'm scared now and I want them to stop and I can't make them stop. That's when a trivial psychosis turns into a non-trivial psychotic reaction. And sometimes that can last just a few seconds. It could be fleeting. Or it could last many minutes. It could go on for an, for an hour. If you're in a bad place on a psychedelic trip and you're getting sensations and feelings that you don't like, that you can't stop, that are making you fear for your life and your sanity, that's a psychotic episode. And one of the things I wanted to talk about in these last 10 issues, one of the ideas that I was considering, was that for each episode, I would do a different case study of someone who had an extreme psychotic reaction. On psychedelics and how that affected their life or maybe how that led to their death but that in retrospect seems a little much I don't know if I can carry that out for ten episodes that may be too dark that may be too grim but if we look back at the first two episodes episode 1 I talked a lot about Terrence McKenna because he was my first case study La Charrera, the experimented La Charrera with him, with Terrence and Dennis, was definitely a psychotic episode, possibly one of the largest and greatest and and best documented psychotic episodes in the psychedelic community. Uh, They both went crazy. They both had a psychotic split from reality. Uh, They both were hearing voices and seeing visions and communicating with deities and aliens um, from from other dimensions, other galaxies, whatever. It was intense, and it took them it took them weeks, months, maybe the rest of their lives to recover from that psychotic episode. And then, of course, there was this other hidden psychotic episode that Terrence had on mushrooms sometime in the late '80s, where the legend says that he had to swear off mushrooms for the rest of his life because that experience was so intense. So Terrence was my first case study for how psychotic episodes on psychedelics can fuel people to take action, not just, you know, have the psychotic episode and shrug it off and continue on with their lives, but actually in the wake of the psychotic episode, change their behavior, change the way they think, change the course of their life in some way in reaction to the psychotic episode. And what I discovered when I was piecing together the events of 1993, when I started communicating with people in the psychedelic community, is that all of that activity, all of those those actions of me reaching out to meet other people in the community, were in the wake of my first psychotic episode on mushrooms. And I realized halfway through recording the second episode that the second case study was me. I could look back on my own big freak out, my own big trip, and realize that that was the moment in my life, the the day after, the week after that experience, that I really knuckled down and dedicated my time and my life to figuring out what the hell was going on in the psychedelic experience. Because before that, I had been interested in, in how psychedelics work. I was looking for answers. And basically, I was looking for answers in books. I assume there must be a book out there written by somebody that explained how psychedelics worked. And I would travel to libraries all around the area where I lived looking for information. And I had read all the books that I could find on the subject. And the one thing that kept sticking out for me was that nobody could explain how they worked, how the hallucinogen worked, what the what caused the hallucinogenic properties. Now, when I, when I first took LSD, my first experience on LSD, it was not... A huge trip it was a very mild trip and I think that was probably beneficial because I was able to have the experience without getting too deep into it so deep that I lost myself but I do remember very clearly the first seconds when the LSD started coming on we had dropped acid and driven up into the mountains to go hike around for the day It was a very beautiful day, and I remember stepping out of the car and walking onto the trail and looking up at the mountainside, and I could see all the pine trees on the side of the mountain undulating in these waves, like little circular waves. They would go up and down, and any time I saw one tree branch move in the wind, it was like all the tree branches in the corners of my eyes were waving up and down, back and forth. And I could see layers of trees on top of trees. Like the, tr- the, the trees were floating over each other in layers, uh, moving up and down, creating this, what looked like, breathing motion. Like the hill itself was breathing. It would expand out and then collapse back in, and the trees would all undulate and wave. And I thought, it looks like the mountain is breathing And it looks like every time I see one tree branch move I get the expectation or the the feeling that all the other tree branches are moving so they're all in constant motion. There's this constant kaleidoscope of motion in my periphery no matter where I look. And the thing I thought to myself at that moment was this must be some kind of optical illusion. I wasn't mystified. I wasn't transcended. I wasn't dumped into another world. The first thought that came into my mind was, must be some kind of optical illusion. Because I was a fan of optical illusions. I studied optical illusions. I had books on optical illusions. I loved how easy it was to fool the brain, giving it some conflicting information about what, what, picture that, what picture am I looking at? And if you looked at a picture one way, it was an old woman, and if you looked at a picture another way, it was a young woman. Optical illusions like that, where the brain doesn't know exactly what it's looking at, and, and it tries to flip images um, to, to, to get the meaning. I looked at this mountain breathing, and I never once suspected that the mountain was actually breathing. I thought, am I seeing a metaphor for something? Are the trees the lungs of the mountain? And this illusion of the mountain breathing is just me piecing together how this, this respiratory system of our earth works, how the trees breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen, and, and how the, the mountain is actually somehow taking in lungfuls of breath like a human. So all of these thoughts crossed my mind as I was standing there but never once did i believe that i was actually seeing what i thought i was seeing i said god this must be some kind of optical illusion and i thought to myself i really need to figure out how this works but it wasn't a passion of mine it was just sort of a hobby of mine and it wasn't until a couple of years later at least i had been all around the world i had traveled around the world i had dropped acid in foreign countries and with people that I had just met and had a lot of very strange and weird and wild experiences, but I had never had a full-on freak-out experience, a full-on psychotic episode. But once I did, once I had that psychotic episode and I found myself so deep in the experience that I could not write myself without phoning a friend to come over and talk me down once I had been through that and came out of it I entered into a period of mania for at least a couple of weeks where I was very active and I was very much in the mode that I'm going to get to the bottom of this I'm finally going to figure this out which is when I started writing Timothy Leary and Rick Doblin at Maps and Peter Stafford and Terrence McKenna and I think I probably wrote to Bruce Eisner. I'm not sure how many people I wrote to, but I wrote to a lot of people. I basically decided that I needed to start meeting people and talking to them firsthand, one-on-one, picking their brains, getting as much information as I could, because what I was getting from books was not enough. There was not enough there. There were not enough answers for me to feel like this question was resolved. One of the books I uh, had, or I had borrowed from the library back at that time, was Albert Hoffman's LSD, My Problem Child, which came out in 1979, I believe, and is still, in my opinion, one of the best accounts of the history of LSD, of course, from the man who created it, Albert Hoffman. And one of the things that brought me back to this text recently was a passage A chapter that he has on psychotic reactions to LSD which he calls horror trips in quotes it's clear from reading this chapter of the book where LSD goes from being a remedy to an inebriant that Albert Hoffman is very upset by the adoption of LSD as a recreational drug by the hippie movement, and he has some choice words to say about uh, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert and basically blames them for the widespread adoption of LSD, and he even calls Leary uh, one of the founding fathers of the hippie cult. He uses the word cult a few times, Uh, Albert Hoffman does, and I know at the time there was a big split between what i'll call the european intellectuals like albert hoffman and aldous huxley and the hippie movement i think that the european intellectuals felt like they were on to something big a very very ancient large secret of mysticism and transcendence that they were they were tracking down and in contrast the the hippies of the west coast of america seemed to be uneducated, unwashed, dirty, uh, sort of lumpen in their hedonism and their lack of intellectual curiosity. And this this was troubling to Albert Hoffman because he did not want to see his creation being misused as a tool of social subversion, which was essentially what was happening in the hippie movement. So Albert Hoffman does have a big section here on psychotic reactions in his book and he talks about horror trips and he talks about the possibility of people having um, a psychotic derailment uh, committing suicide committing crimes losing track of where they are going into a psychotic crisis um, and he offers some words of advice on on how to how to maybe avoid a psychotic trip and he basically blames the recreational use of of psychedelics and the unregulated uncontrolled experimentation of psychedelics among young people for these horror trips he blames the user essentially for having a bad trip which I can understand because he's a doctor he's a clinical professional he's not a doctor of course he's a chemist he's a clinical professional and he understands that you know the difference between a medicine and a poison is dose. And if people are experimenting with improper doses in improper places, then of course it's it's their own fault that there's going to be horror trips. But of course there were cheerleaders of the movement. There were cheerleaders of the movement who were giving people manuals, like the psychedelic experience based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead and so on, giving them manuals for how to navigate a high-dose trip. And then of course those people would turn around and have a psychotic reaction and there you go. And I'll just read a quick passage here from the text, LSD My Problem Child. Hoffman says, In the course of such an LSD experiment, frightening visions, death agony, or the fear of becoming insane can lead to a threatening psychic breakdown or even to suicide. Here, the LSD trip becomes a horror trip. Now, for any of you who haven't read LSD My Problem Child, I highly recommend it. It's available online. You can find it at Arrowhead and Maps. And you can go right to this section on psychotic episodes and see what Albert Hoffman has to say about it. When I was doing uh, research on psychotic episodes a few weeks ago, this was one of the passages that came up in my searches. I I guess Albert Hoffman has one of the best and clearest breakdowns of, of what happens in a psychotic episode on LSD. And as I was reading through the book... As I was refamiliarizing myself with Hoffman's text, I went back to the beginning of the book to look at his self-experiments and, of course, the famous bicycle ride that happened on, I guess, April 19th, 1943. This is, perhaps, the most famous trip report ever written because it is the first purposeful use of LSD in a self-experimentation by Albert Hoffman, the chemist that discovered the drug. Now, a few days earlier, April 16th, 1943, he had gotten a little bit of the substance on his hand and went home, was dizzy, lied down, had some visions. And his uh, report of that experience is pretty short. I'll just, I'll read it for you here. I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home, being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into a not-unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition, characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed, I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring. I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. After some two hours, this condition faded away. Now, that was a very mild trip. In fact, that was a nice trip. He had a very nice, good trip. He got a little dizzy. He got a little restless. He felt a little out of sorts, so he went and lied down, and he had these waking dreams. He had these hallucinations that were colorful, kaleidoscopic pictures. Very nice, very tame. Seems like it might be an interesting way to spend the afternoon. But three days later, he decided to actually experiment with what he thought might be a larger dose. Since he did not realize that he had gotten the substance on his hand, he assumed that even the tiniest amount of exposure to LSD would cause some sort of psychoactive reaction. So being cautious, he measured out 250 micrograms of LSD tartrate powder, diluted in some water, and drank it. Now, for those of you who know what a good-sized dose of LSD is, you know that 250 micrograms is a very large dose. I mean, it's, it's on the larger side. It's not large for people who are very familiar with large doses, but it's on the larger side of a, of a, of a strong dose. So he tried to take notes from this trip, and within 40 minutes, he began feeling dizziness, anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, and desire to laugh. And then he stopped taking notes because by that time he had started to panic. He said he suffered a most severe crisis, and two days later he wrote a special report about what happened in that most severe crisis. Now, as I said, this is perhaps the most famous trip report in history, and it is very colorful and vivid in what happens. But what I did not see the first time that I read this book, back in maybe the early 1990s, was that what he is describing here in this description is a horror trip. He had a psychotic episode. So while I was rereading LSD, My Problem Child, a couple weeks ago, As part of the research that I was doing for this series of episodes, I realized that I had found my third case study. It was Albert Hoffman and his famous bicycle day trip, because that trip, without a doubt, is the epitome of a psychedelic psychotic episode, or as Albert Hoffman called it, a horror trip. Now, as I said, this is probably one of the most famous and well-reported trip reports in history, Albert Hoffman's Bicycle Day Trip, but I'm just going to read a couple lines of it for you here to see what you think in the context of what I'm talking about with psychotic episodes. So Albert Hoffman rides home and gets to his house, and here he talks about how he's feeling. The dizziness and sensation of fainting became so strong at times that I could no longer hold myself erect and had to lie down on a sofa. My surroundings had now transformed themselves in more terrifying ways. Everything in the room spun around, and the familiar objects and pieces of furniture assumed grotesque, threatening forms. They were in continuous motion, animated as if driven by an inner restlessness. The lady next door, whom I scarcely recognized, brought me milk. In the course of the evening, I drank more than two liters. She was no longer Mrs. R, but rather a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask." Now, already at the onset of this, we can see that Albert Hoffman has gotten into a bad place. And you can see that LSD at this point is not a relaxed, turn off your mind and float downstream kind of experience. It is a terrifying nightmare That albert hoffman has found himself in and he continues he says even worse than these demonic transformations of the outer world were the alterations that i perceived in myself in my inner being every exertion of my will every attempt to put an end to the disintegration of the outer world and the dissolution of my ego seemed to be a wasted effort a demon had invaded me had had taken possession of my body mind and soul i jumped up and screamed trying to free myself from him but then sank down again and lay helpless on the sofa the substance with which i had wanted to experiment had vanquished me it was the demon that scornfully triumphed over my will i was seized by the dreadful fear of going insane and hoppin continues I was taken to another world another place another time my body seemed to be without sensation lifeless strange was i dying was this the transition at times i believed myself to be outside my body and then perceived clearly as an outside observer the complete tragedy of my situation i had not even taken leave of my family would they ever understand that i had not experimented thoughtlessly irresponsibly but rather with the utmost conscience and that such a result was in no way foreseeable my fear and despair intensified not only because the young family should lose its father but also because i dreaded leaving my chemical research work which meant so much to me unfinished in the midst of fruitful promising developments another reflection took shape an idea full of bitter irony if i was now forced to leave this world prematurely It was because of this lysergic acid diethylamide that I myself had brought forth into the world. And there you have it in a nutshell. All of the elements that Albert Hoffman describes in the psychotic episode, psychotic reactions part of this book happen here in this first purposeful self-experimentation with LSD. He lost it. He lost his sense of self, he lost his grounding to reality, he feared that he was going insane, and he feared that he was dying. And not only that, when he was pushed outside of his body, at the height of his suffering, all he could see was what a horrible, helpless wretch he had become, and what a tragic mistake he had made. Now that is a pretty heavy, heavy, psychotic episode. And I never really viewed that first experiment of Albert Hoffman's as a psychotic episode. But now looking back, reading this again with a different perspective, I can see clearly, I can see clearly that he was having a very prolonged, sustained psychotic episode in which he was in a very deep state of panic and uh, calling in his lifelines, calling a doctor to come help him, calling his next door neighbor to come help him. Um, because he could not hold it together himself. And this, I think, is probably one of the larger pieces of a psychotic episode, especially a a psychedelic psychotic episode, that doesn't really get described very much. And that is the part of the process where you realize that you've done yourself in and you have to call in a lifeline. You have to call a neighbor or call a friend to come and talk you down and help you get through this thing that you had done to yourself on purpose now having been in that situation i can only assume that albert hoffman felt a lot of shame and embarrassment for that and maybe felt that he had been overly foolish in experimenting on himself with this substance and felt bad that he had to have his neighbor come and tend to him throughout the night when he perceived her to be an insidious witch in a demon mask now eventually the trip wore off and uh he has some some recollections the next day that i wanted i want to read for you he says exhausted i then slept to awake the next morning refreshed with a clear head though still somewhat tired physically a sensation of well-being and renewed life flowed through me Breakfast tasted delicious and gave me extraordinary pleasure when I later walked out into the garden in which the sun shone now after a spring rain everything glistened and sparkled in a fresh light the world was as if newly created all my senses vibrated in a condition of the highest sensitivity which persisted for the entire day now that sounds nice especially in contrast to the to the horror that he had to endure the day before he went to sleep, probably didn't sleep very well, but when he woke up the next day, he had this renewed vigor, this renewed feeling of life. And I know that some people out there who have taken psychedelics know that feeling, know that feeling of waking up the next day and everything seem, seeming new and vibrant and colorful. But what I also see in this report is that Albert Hoffman, the next day, was, was still in a state of mania. This, he's talking about being in a manic state. And I don't think he would use those terms. I don't know if he would use the term to describe that trip as a psychotic episode or a horror trip, but looking at it, I think, yes, it does have all the hallmark- hallmarks of a psychotic episode, a high adrenaline event with a lot of panic, which has a residual hangover, not of being, being restless and beaten down the next day, but of coming back feeling manic, and Coming back feeling manic is partially a result of the pharmacological reaction of the LSD, but also partially a result of having such an intense psychotic episode, living through it, and then the body needing to react the next day, to rebound the next day, with all of this adrenaline still kicking around in your system. That sparks... A manic episode that can last days afterwards when you're in this magical world where everything seems new and fresh and vibrant, and I know the magical world i've been in the magical world i'm I'm very familiar with that magical space that persists for a few days until you find yourself sinking back into your your body uh, you feel yourself returning from whatever that space was, and and kind of folding back into yourself. Now, as a case study for people in the community who may have started their careers with a massive psychotic episode, Albert Hoffman seems like a good candidate. And when you look at Albert Hoffman's career and what happened to him after the discovery of LSD, specifically after this psychedelic event after this test where he experimented with LSD on himself for the first time and had a very major psychotic episode, his life started to change. He was no longer mild-mannered Swiss chemist toiling away at Sandoz Labs. He was the world-famous discoverer of LSD-25, and that discovery gave him international fame. And not only did it give him international fame, it gave him a new course of study. Because after this, after this period of time, although Albert Hoffman did continue to do some chemistry, his life changed. His life changed, and and over time, he was no longer interested in studying chemistry. He was interested in going all around the world and studying sacred plants. Other compounds that had this intense hallucinatory effect. So instead of finishing his career as a chemist, he actually switches tracks and goes into the career of studying ethnomedicines, visual plants from around the world. He continues his book talking about his experiences with LSD his experience with psilocybin mushrooms from Mexico, his experience with morning glory seeds, and searching for other plants around Central America. And this became his passion. His passion became following this thread of visionary plants and visionary substances in the wake of this major, major psychotic episode he had, where he not only thought that he was going insane, but he thought that he was dying. That experience he had, that bicycle day psychedelic experience, was not a mystical communion with the great void. It was not a, a transcendence of ego into a timeless state of gnosis. It was a full blown psychotic episode where he thought the furniture was menacing him and his neighbor was a witch and that he was going to die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't. The little pleasant trip it wasn't the mystical trip it was a full-blown psychotic episode and of course in the wake of that in the wake of that power in the wake of that effect on his mind his life changed his life changed and he took a new course for himself and out of that came plants of the gods which is the book that he co-authored with Richard Evans Schulte's on all of the visionary plants from around the world Used by indigenous tribes and local peoples and if you haven't read LSD my problem child I would I would highly recommend it I think it is a great book detailing not only the history of LSD but also the history of the discovery of many visionary plants around the world Albert Hoffman was instrumental in that of course Richard Evans Schultes and uh, Gordon Wasson among others uh, did a lot of the legwork and the field research that we now take for granted And I seriously believe that Albert Hoffman took on this personal journey of discovery around the world based on a deep desire to figure out what had happened to him in that big LSD trip that changed his life. I seriously feel like even with all of the intellectual tools at his disposal, he could not wrap his mind around what was going on in that experience. So much so that it led him to leave the comfort of his research bench and travel the world in search of experts who may be practicing in a more primitive, ritualistic scenario, but may have more information about how these substances are used or how they should be used. Because he as a european intellectual a chemist raised in the western school could not come to grips with what was going on in this trip and i say that because of the last chapter of the book lsd my problem child which is titled lsd experience and reality and i must say that i probably read this chapter back when i read this book for the first time in the 90s, early 90s, some some sometime, And I probably skimmed over this chapter because, honestly, I probably had no idea what Hoffman was talking about. It is kind of a convoluted mix of philosophical ideas that, to me, illustrate just how conflicted Albert Hoffman was about this subject the subject of the visionary experience lsd's place in the world lsd's place in society and and what the role of the hallucinogen is he struggles with it you can you can see him struggling with it in this last chapter where this is a book where he's talking about lsd his creation and it starts off with the hope that this is going to be a medical miracle of some kind And by the middle of the book, that hope has come crashing down because the the medical miracle had turned into this recreational monster. And the recreational monster essentially undermined the potential of the medical miracle. And so instead of being left with a medical miracle as his creation, as as his baby, he now has a monster for a baby. And even though he's been all over the world looking for other substances that are similar to the substance that he's discovered, he still does not have a succinct idea about where this substance fits in society. And why do I say that? Well, there's a couple clues. Because he could have ended the book saying, yes, these substances are visionary, and yes, they have medical potential. But as of now, they've been deemed too dangerous for further exploration. And I guess that's where we're going to have to leave it. Because at this point, my creation has grown up and it's out of my hands. So world, do with it what you will. I am no longer in control. Now that would have been a very rational way for him to finish his book. But I think he had an ulterior motive And the reason I say that is because he opens up this chapter talking about the question of reality, the problem of reality, and how philosophy and science have had a very difficult time defining reality. And this seems like a very big detour from what he's been talking about in the rest of the book. This is actually an extremely large philosophical detour that he goes on here about how reality is essentially in the mind of the perceiver and that if you take a substance that changes your reality maybe instead of altering your mind what it's actually doing is altering the relationship between the sender and the receiver between the sender which is reality and the receiver which is the mind parsing reality. And one of his assertions is that LSD may change the channel or change the frequency that reality is being perceived upon so that by changing the frequency of your receiver, suddenly you get a different picture of what the sender is sending you. And here, I'll, I'll read a direct quote. The true importance of LSD and related hallucinogens lies in their capacity to shift the wavelength setting of the receiving self, and thereby to evoke alterations in reality consciousness. This ability to allow different, new pictures of reality to arise, this truly cosmogonic power, makes the cultish worship of hallucinogenic plants and sacred drugs understandable now with statements like this hoffman is revealing his true agenda and that is that he feels he believes that lsd and hallucinogenic plants actually open the mind up to a deeper reality they actually allow the mind to change the wavelength of the frequency that they're receiving so that they're seeing a deeper, clearer picture of reality, or a a different picture of reality. And to support this thesis, he goes down a little bit of a rabbit hole about Western social theory, and he quotes an essay from Gottfried Benn, in which he characterizes this split between self and the world as the schizoid catastrophe, or the Western Entelechy Neurosis. And I'll say that again because this is, this is an interesting point. A Western Entelechy Neurosis or a Schizoid Catastrophe in which the self, the conception of the self, has become separated from reality. So the self no longer feels a oneness with reality. It feels separated from reality in that the self is put at odds with reality, and reality is something that needs to be overcome and struggled against. Now, to support this view of the schizoid catastrophe or the Western entelechy neurosis, Hoffman quotes Gottfried Ben, he quotes Nietzsche, he talks about the birth of tragedy and says, the notion of reality is the self juxtaposed to the world in confrontation with the outer world, began to form itself, as reported in the citation from Ben, in the southern portion of the European continent in Greek antiquity. So what is Albert Hoffman doing here, bringing up all of this social theory about a schism between self and reality? He definitely has an agenda that he's forming here, and he's going back and blaming the Greeks for some kind of western catastrophe that caused everybody in the western world to develop a kind of pathology a kind of western entelechy neurosis which as far as i can tell is a fancy way of describing some anxiety about being able to fill a human potential so in the course of a few paragraphs here at the end of his book albert hoffman is diagnosing the entire sum of western civilization with a schizoid catastrophe that it gives us anxiety because the self is no longer connected to reality because of this notion that the Greeks fed us about how man is supposed to be in control of nature or or something to that effect i, I to be honest i've i've read this last chapter multiple times and it's still it's still a little confounding to me I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around this and why he's going to such lengths around the horn here to make this point. And the point that he is making is that Western civilization is now suffering from this primordial break from oneness consciousness into this duality of self juxtaposed against reality, which to me sounds a lot like the original sin myth of the garden of eden where adam and eve eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge and are then cast out of the garden which is maybe a metaphor for this split between the self and reality or the split between the self and the natural world so what is the whole point here what is the whole point of describing this western entelechy neurosis and diagnosing everybody in the western world with this suffering That comes with this Greek trick of fooling us all into thinking that the self is somehow juxtaposed with reality. Well, the point is that Albert Hoffman believes that the only way to cure this suffering from this Western entelechy neurosis is to engage in the mystical ritual of communion or transcendence so that. The self separated from reality can enter into mystical union with creation and feel that sense of oneness, that wholeness that connects them to the world. And that will ease the suffering of this Western entelechy neurosis. And that Dionysian rites of inebriation and inebriant rituals are the cure for this schism, for this schizoid catastrophe. Dionysian rituals of inebriation and meditation and ritual belief are the cure for western neurosis. And he even goes beyond that. He goes on to explicitly state that communion with underlying reality ends... In communion with the deepest most comprehensive reality or God Hoffman admits to being a Christian and having Christian faith but also says that ecclesiastical Christianity obliterated the Dionysian cults that partook in these rituals of communion these rituals of inebriation and communion and therefore deepened the split between self and reality through their oppression of these cults and only by reclaiming the practices of these cults ritual inebriation to see the deeper aspect of reality or the deepest aspect of reality which of course is god that is the solution to the problem that the modern world is facing this western entelechy neurosis and hoffman wraps up this chapter talking about meditation and spiritual practices that are supposed to suspend the boundaries between quote the experiencing self and the outer world in an ecstatic emotional experience so he's talking about meditation he's talking about transcendence he's talking about religious ecstasy and he's talking about a communion with a deeper reality or or god and i'll I'll read for you now the last sentence of his book last sentence of the book I see the true importance of LSD in the possibility of providing material aid to meditation aimed at the mystical experience of a deeper comprehensive reality such a use accords entirely with the essence and working character of LSD as a sacred drug period so you can see here in the last sentence what the agenda is, and what this whole ride around the horn of Western civilization and the introduction of this idea of a Western neurosis comes from. Albert Hoffman is trying to make the case that the world is sick and that LSD is the sacred drug that is going to bring you relief. He says, just a few paragraphs earlier, the fundamental importance of a mystical experience is for the recovery of people in Western industrial societies who are sickened by a one-sided, rational, materialistic worldview. And on top of that, he also says, Objective reality, the worldview produced by the spirit of scientific inquiry, is the myth of our time. So in the last few pages of a book that's built on scientific inquiry written by a scientist who was doing science when he developed this drug he throws out he throws under the bus objective reality scientific inquiry and all of western civilization as a problem that needs to be cured and again i had to read this 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 last chapter a couple times to figure out what the hell he was saying But this is exactly what he's saying. He's saying that Western civilization is sick. It's the fault of the Greeks who created this idea of a self-juxtaposed to reality. And since then, it has led to a schizoid catastrophe where we have a one-sided rationalistic worldview where objective reality trumps all and leaves the self feeling isolated and small. And the only remedy, the only remedy for this Western intellectual neurosis, the sickening pathology that we all have, the only remedy is the use of LSD, a sacred drug, in combination with some sort of meditation and sacred ritual. Which leaves me to say, what the fuck is he talking about This is some high-powered, potent, philosophical bullshit aimed at trying to justify the continued use of LSD as not a medicine, because that ship sailed, and not as a recreational inebriant, because he, being a European intellectual, can't abide by dirty hippies taking his drug and turning it into something to party about so what's left the only thing left for LSD is this last chance hope that it can be shoehorned into mystic ritual as a cure for future shock uh, post-industrial depression and anxiety social anime that goes along with living in the modern world I'm sure there's many ways that you can describe it other than Western intellectual neurosis. I tend to think of it basically as depression and anxiety. He's talking about depression and anxiety of living in the modern world. And to him, the way to cure this depression and anxiety of living in the modern world is to fill, facilitate this reconnection to a deeper world, a deeper understanding, and maybe even to God himself, which is the deepest understanding of reality. Now, I can understand all of this. From a philosophical perspective, this all makes sense. Yes, Western civilization may cause depression and anxiety, and yes, taking, taking psychedelics in a sacred ceremony may make you feel communion with the, with the outer world so that you don't feel so alienated and isolated. And it may feel, make you feel slightly better about yourself or the state of the world, and that's all fine. However, and this is a big however, if you go back and reread the book and reread all of the experiences, especially the personal experiences that Albert Hoffman himself has on various different drugs, you will notice one thing that's missing. And that one thing that's missing is any description at all of a transcendence with a deeper sense of reality or a communion with the outer world that left him feeling peaceful and one and whole and unified with creation. You don't get that anywhere in any of the reports of any of the trips that he takes. What you get is paranoid psychotic reactions, crazy visions he can't control, Um, periods of stupefying uh, dumbness when he can't speak or think or even pick up a pencil to write down what he's thinking about. He is describing psychotic drug trips on heavy hallucinogens that leave you physically overwhelmed and mentally incapacitated beyond the power to control. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about hallucinogens that leave you delirious and deluded walking around in a state of stupor and confusion with your head filled with visions and sounds that you can't control. Now, how does he go from those experiences, those experiences that he lived, which were so clearly not spiritual communion with the deeper reality, clearly not spiritual communion with the deeper reality. How can he go from those experiences to this last chapter, where he ignores everything that he said about psychotic episodes and horror trips and hippies and all of that stuff and goes right into oh no no uh, meditation sacred ritual um, healing the schizoid catastrophe lsd sacred drug to me it seems extremely disingenuous and to be fair if you go and read all of the third person accounts in LSD, my problem child, not Albert Hoffman's personal accounts, but third person accounts that he has included in the text. You will find some of them that have this existential communion with God in them, like maybe at the peak of the trip. Somebody explains uh, the, the merging of the white light and the cosmic unity with God, and every fiber of my molecule, every molecule of my being is one with God. So that, that, notion is in there it is included in there but it is also included among all sorts of other stuff the majority of which have nothing to do with this idea of coming into a communion with with god so what albert hoffman has done is he's picked out one facet of the experience one facet of this experience, which is psychotic and wild and unpredictable, and said, okay, this one experience, this is the true valuable experience, this sacred communion, this is the true valuable experience that LSD promises. And he wraps that mystical communion in what I will call um, European intellectual gobbledygook about the schizoid catastrophe and the human juxtaposition of self versus reality that's creating a suffering, a suffering that we all need to, to heal ourselves of. And this isn't, this isn't Hoffman's own creation. This sentiment has been around for a long time. It's part of the transcendental movement. Um, it's become part of transpersonal psychology. This myth of uh, the Western schism between self and reality that's causing um, everybody to feel alienated in the modern world. And I tend to think that that's just a lot of BS. I think that in every culture, no matter where they come from and whatever their view of the self juxtaposed with reality is, there's alienation. Um, and it's just part of the human condition, and you can't go back and blame it on the Greeks and say that, that the Greeks created some sort of schizoid catastrophe that's left us all in a state of of alienation from god that is all very high-powered philosophical nonsense that gets adopted hook line and sinker by everybody who tries to come into the psychedelic experience and analyze it with the tools of european intellectualism this is where they always come back to this communion with god this original sin this break with a oneness of creation and the sense of alienation that we all live in now. And it gets wrapped in a big circle. It gets wrapped in a big circle, basically saying that, hey, you humans, you're walking around with a big hole in your life because you've forgotten how to connect to nature. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you some drugs and a ritual that lets you connect to nature and feel that oneness. And then you will be whole again. And we will have saved you and you can see how this is very much a metaphor for the christian symbolism of the soul and christ's salvation and mixed in with the the, the, the concept of the dionysian rites the shamanic ceremony uh, the communion with the great spirit etc 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 and i think i don't think there has been a single psychedelic philosopher in modern times that hasn't bought into this line 100% and adopted it as their own, as if it is the truth, because then it gives them the authority to say, we are tapping into a deeper wisdom with these visionary plants. We are solving a problem in the modern world. We're solving a problem in the modern world by tapping into a deeper reality, a deeper sense of reality. And it makes the psychedelic experience sound like it's a panacea, like it's a panacea for the human condition. You can't be whole. You can't be cured of your alienation unless you take this psychedelic drug in this ritual and get back to your communion your oneness with the transcendental other or whatever you want to call it god the spirit world the alternate dimension the hyper dimension whatever so the theory is that the, that that connection the reconnection to deeper reality will make you feel wholer as a human being and then what happens after that is sort of unknown it's sort of up to you what are you supposed to do after you've had the transcendental communion What are you supposed to do after you've had the visionary experience and the connection to the oneness? How is that supposed to change you? How is that supposed to change your thinking about yourself and about the deeper world? And that may be a subject for another episode, because then we're getting into concepts of transcendental psychology or transpersonal psychology. And it raises a deeper question, which is, is there a psychedelic agenda Or is there a psychedelic ideology that is being promoted through this narrative of western alienation and communion and what the post-communion self is supposed to think as opposed to the pre-communion self and that's something that i'll probably be talking about in a later episode about what is supposed to happen In the psychedelic agenda, if there is a psychedelic agenda, what is the psychedelic agenda? What is the underlying psychedelic ideology? And not just in terms of European intellectualism, but also in terms of what does the psychedelic actually do to the brain that causes the conception of the self to change? What are the chemical and synaptic things events that happen in the wake of the psychedelic experience that change the conception of the self. Is there a psychedelic agenda that touches everybody who takes a psychedelic or psychedelics basically agendaless, except for whatever the user expects of them? That's, that's something that I'll be addressing in another episode. But what I wanted to get back to as I wrap up this episode is a very important notion a very important idea that has struck me as not being very well evaluated in the psychedelic community or in the school of european psychedelic intellectualism and that is this in the deconstruction of the psychedelic experience and the focus on this one event this communion with the other or this this interconnectedness of all things or this union, this unao mystica, this mystical union that, that all of the psychedelic philosophers tend to highlight as the crown jewel of the experience, the, the, the true value and the one piece that everybody should be focused on, this union mystica, the mystical experience, the mystical union. One thing that's never considered is that psychedelics are hallucinogens and if you can hallucinate that your next-door neighbor is an insidious witch wearing a demon mask or you can hallucinate that a demon has invaded your body or you can hallucinate that the furniture in your room is moving and trying to menace you and you know that all of those things are not real how come when you hallucinate that you're having a communion experience or a mystical experience with God, do you then make the leap to accept that that is a true experience and not merely a hallucination based on the fact that you just took a hallucinogen that makes you see things that are not real? Think about it. If 90% of the things that you see on hallucinogens are verifiably not true. Breathing walls, melting walls, breathing carpets, weird faces, weird patterns that appear out of things. If all of those things are obviously and verifiably not true and not real and not there and are merely the product of your own imagination, Why then make the leap that this other 1% of the trip where you feel a mystical union with the world, why assume that that one part of it is true when everything else in the trip is a hallucination and not true? This whole or this omission in the parsing of the experience, and in the literature, and in all of the glowing reports from all of the psychedelic philosophers that want to tell you how wonderful the experience is, never once does anybody say, oh yeah, and this sense of the mystical union of God, or the interconnectedness to all things, that's most likely a hallucination too. That's most likely a hallucination, because you're you're on a hallucinogen. No one ever says that. I don't think anyone has ever said that. I don't think I've heard anyone ever say that anywhere or or have ever seen it written anywhere. The fact is, is that if you're on a psychedelic and you're experiencing hours of hallucination, and then in the last two minutes of the hours of your hallucination, you suddenly feel like you're in the presence of God or that you've connected with the transcendental other or that you've created a union between the self and the real world. Why is it that people hold on to that experience and say, that was real, I had a real religious epiphany, as opposed to saying, I had the hallucination of a religious epiphany at the end of a long string of other hallucinations? How come people are not willing to parse that experience as a hallucination when they are more than willing to parse the hallucination of like say being invaded by a demon or their their furniture turning into grotesque creatures they could very easily dismiss that as a hallucination oh because that's that's crazy that's unusual for a piece of furniture to turn into a grotesque character so that must be a hallucination however Having a mystical union with God, that's not unusual. That's a thing that happens. So that must be a real experience. That must be a real epiphany that I had. And what I'm saying is, no, you don't get to make that kind of a selective interpretation. You don't get to pick and choose what part of your hallucinations are real and valid and what parts of them are not. It doesn't work like that. You can't just excise the one piece of the experience that you like, or the one distinct experience that you thought was more spiritual than others, and then say, aha, a true spiritual experience within all this other noise and garbage that was swirling around in my head. I think that that is intellectually dishonest. And beyond that, it's dangerous. Because with this philosophy, that Albert Hoffman is putting forth at the end of his book, he's offering the promise of spiritual transcendence in the LSD experience. He's offering the promise of a true religious epiphany within the psychedelic experience as opposed to offering a hallucination or a close facsimile to a true religious epiphany, which is what I would say is a more accurate representation of a sacred psychedelic experience. It's a facsimile of a true religious experience, or it's a hallucination that closely resembles a religious experience. It's not a true religious experience. It's a hallucination. I mean, you take a drug to hallucinate things that are not real, and then when you have an experience, just because it feels real, you can't then turn around and say, oh, this was real and then offer that experience to somebody else as if it is also real. I think it's dishonest. I think it's intellectually disingenuous. And I also think it's dangerous. And when I ask myself, why did Albert Hoffman feel concerned enough to include this last chapter and make this case? I think it has to be because of his own legacy, because of his concern for his own legacy. He hoped that LSD would be a kind of miracle drug or a cure for something. And then it became a recreational inebriant. And that wasn't good enough for him. Being the creator of a recreational inebriant was not good enough for him. It wasn't good enough. You couldn't just be the creator of a recreational inebriant. It had to be a Dionysian inebriant. That's used in a sacred ceremony to create an experience of oneness with creation, a sacrament, a sacred drug. Because if he is the creator of a sacrament, that makes him akin to a demigod or an angel on earth of some kind, delivering a spiritual cure, a meta medicine, as he calls it in that last chapter for healing the suffering of modern humans. Being the creator of a sacrament is a much more dignified thing to be than the godfather of a recreational drug that a bunch of hippies use at raves and parties and jam bands to get high and have a good time. If all LSD is good for is a recreational drug, then basically Albert Hoffman is a drug manufacturer. He is not the creator of a sacrament, and he is not a demigod of any cultural religion. He's just a man who created a very powerful drug. And I don't think he wanted to end his book saying, my creation is a monster that I can't control. It's up to society now to figure out what to do with it. I don't think he could bring himself to do that. He thought LSD might be a savior. It wasn't it turned into a monster. He didn't like that. So he crafted an intellectual paradigm appropriated from the Greeks, from European intellectualism, and from indigenous shamanic culture. He created this paradigm of the sacred drug, and he wanted to leave LSD in that paradigm of the sacred drug. So instead of being a savior or a monster, what he has created is an angel an angel that can deliver mankind from suffering when used in the proper context. And I can fully understand that. I can un- I can fully understand his impulses for doing that. But in reading the text, I find it troubling at how many people have bought into that paradigm as if it is the only true paradigm for psychedelic use in the modern world. When in my mind, looking at it now, I find it extremely flawed and an extremely desperate attempt for European intellectualism to put a high value on this experience which I see mostly as an aberration of human consciousness an extreme distortion of human consciousness something that is fun for recreational experimentation maybe for psychological experimentation to gain insights into the deepest, darkest corners of your mind, but would in no way recommend as a spiritual medicine for healing the suffering of mankind. I think that that paradigm of psychedelics as a spiritual medicine or as a panacea for the human condition is extremely dangerous and leads to a lot of extremely delusional ideology from people who may think that they're touching a communion or may think that they are experiencing a universal oneness or an interconnectedness of all things, but are more often than not lying on the couch with their eyes closed, experiencing something completely within their own head, completely within their own head. And this externalization of the agency in Albert Hoffman's final chapter where he says reality can be seen as a feedback between sender and receiver. And if you just change the channel of the receiver, you change the channel of consciousness, you can get a deeper communication with the sender. Well, that's assuming there's a sender. That's assuming there's a God. And Albert Hoffman is definitely letting everyone know that he believes in God and he has a Christian faith, and that he's trying very hard to fit the LSD experience into the paradigm of his faith without admitting that the majority of time, hallucinogenic intoxication is actually a pretty depraved thing. It's a pretty depraved, uncontrollable, unbound thing that happens in the human mind that may turn sacred, may turn psychotic but is primarily delusional at its core. Could be fun delusions, could be bad delusions, could be sacred delusions, but primarily filled with delusion. And if anybody listening to this feels the urge to go back and read LSD My Problem Child, again, it's available online. It's a quick read. You could probably get through it in a couple hours. I would suggest paying really close attention to this last chapter. Maybe read the last chapter first, and figure out what what the heck Albert Hoffman is talking about. And realize that he's coming from this paradigm of European intellectualism that goes back to Greek antiquity. And then juxtapose his descriptions of enlightenment experience, meditation, religious experience, and mysticism Go back and juxtapose those descriptions of mystical experience with his trip report of the first LSD experience that he did when he started hallucinating the furniture coming to life and a demon inside of his body and the panic that he was going insane and the panic that he was dying and try to figure out how those two overlap. And you'll realize that there's very, very little overlap. Albert Hoffman began his career with a psychotic episode that was so overwhelming, he lost control of what was going on in his own head. And it left him shaken and rattled. But by the end of the book, the psychedelic experience had morphed from this barely controllable psychotic reaction that you see in the very first chapters, the very first experimentation that he does, into this very flowery, polished, sacred jewel of a mystical exercise. And it is my belief, it is my contention, it is my assertion that Albert Hoffman's journey To find the value of the psychedelic experience of the visionary experience started that day during that psychotic reaction when he was rattled out of his mind and the entire rest of his life he traveled the world and studied sacred plants and hallucinogenic ritual as an attempt to find some means of classifying the experience that he had within the range of human experiences. And what he came up with ultimately was this is a mystical type experience. Not a psychotic experience. Not a recreational good time. But this is a sacred experience. A mystic experience. LSD is a sacred drug. But in my mind after studying Albert Hoffman's work and the work of all of the other European intellectuals that started the philosophical psychedelic movement, my personal belief is that all of this talk about transcendence and communion is really wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking painted over an experience that is very hard to contextualize. It's wishful thinking painted over an experience with intellectualism and mystical analysis in a way that puts an artificial value on the experience not a value of this is an exciting and unique experience something that's hard for people to take sometimes something that's beautiful sometimes and instead of just leaving it at that they had to shine it up and wrap it in this package of mystical union as if It is somehow a medicine for the human condition. And that's simply just a myth. It's not what is going on in the psychedelic experience, and it is not what happens to people who take psychedelics. People who take psychedelics are not magically cured of their alienation from the modern world or whatever kind of Western neurosis Albert Hoffman is talking about. More often than not, they come out of the experience more alienated and sometimes more confused and more delusional and more detached from their societies. And so what I'm saying is, Mr. Hoffman, you can't just release this monster on the world and then turn around and use this paradigm of European intellectualism and mystical union to convince us that it's not a monster, it's an angel. I'm sure that's very nice for you And I'm sure that's very nice for all the people who want to sell books about transcendence and psychedelic communion. But that doesn't erase the monster. The monster is still out there. And society is still dealing with it. We'll be dealing with the monster forever. The monster never dies.